Uh, good morning. My name is Sean, and I'm the lead pastor here. Glad to have you with us this morning as we're continuing our journey together through the book of James. We're going to be in chapter 2, verses 14 through 26 this morning. It's printed for you in the ESV translation on page 9. We've also provided a children's version on page 10. We'll be referring to both of those. Um, as we've been walking through the book of James, James is kind of like the guy who really wants to see the practical application of what you believe. James, who kind of jokingly said, must be from the state of Missouri, which is the show me state. James is the show me book. He's like, you say you believe this. Yeah, whatever. Show me with your life. I want to see it. And we, we went through the famous passage a couple weeks ago of being doers of the word. The idea that they, in their original hearing, would have thought of as being living out the reality of our faith. The last passage we looked at last week was we examined the sin of partiality or of discrimination, where we saw that when we realize that we deserve God's discrimination, that he should exclude us and treat us as less than, but in Christ we receive his mercy rather than his discrimination and judgment, it destroys our natural tendency towards partiality or, or tribalism or discrimination. And today we're going to get into a passage that is very difficult, it's controversial sometimes. And so with this background of James, it really wants us to be practical, I want us to enter into this text. And so if you would, as is our tradition, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word, James chapter 2, starting in verse 14. This is God's Word. <clears throat> what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, well, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works." You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you've chosen to give us your word. Even, Lord, sometimes when it's hard to understand, when it seems just odd like this one does to many of us, Lord. We pray that you would open this text up to us, that we would know your truth, that we would see the beauty of your gospel, and the beauty of your Son, and that we would long for that beauty, Father, that we would find acceptance and forgiveness there. We pray all this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So just as a way of reminder, you know, the sermon time is not a time for me to get up here and pontificate about the state of the world or to tell you my thoughts on the current crisis or whatever that may be. Um, you, you've, just to put it out there, you should not care about my thoughts about anything. 
Okay, and I hope you're not coming here to hear them. That's not what it's about. The sermon is a time when we take God's word and we try to understand what it meant then, and we do our best to apply it to ourselves now. And so my job is to kind of just be the messenger of that, keeping opinions and everything else out of it. This is about God's word to you. So this is not a TED talk. It's not a speech. This is us, we really believe, trying to hear from the creator who has revealed himself to us. And so to get into this text today, I kind of got to set up a hypothetical scenario to really help us get to the heart of it. So here it is. Here we go. Ready? UVA is actually going to win, it looks like. There's not much time left. Everything's down to it. Virginia Tech is going to lose, and UVA is going to win. Now, I'm not talking about some poindexters in the philosophy department uh, winning a debate over existentialism. Okay, they, they do that all the time at UVA. I'm talking football. I'm talking actual college football. Tech is about to lose. Marty's turning blue with rage. Can't believe the injustice of it. There's hardly any time left on the clock. They're down by three points. Got time for one more play. They hike the ball. Tech quarterback rears back, dodges one, two, three people. Two guys are coming in to sandwich him. He can't dodge it, so he just heaves it. The receiver is checked right at the line of scrimmage. Referee doesn't see it. Flag's not thrown. He gets up, runs his route, totally off timing, dodges two different guys. The very last second, he sees the ball coming and somehow does this flying leap through the air and like the ball is like attracted to his fingertips and somehow gets there. He grabs it, lands, touchdown. Tech wins. The world is set right again. UVA will not win against Tech. Woo, it's a close one there. Marty's shirts off, running through his neighborhood, doing like some sort of turkey trot thing. The world is back like it should be. And then it happens. All of a sudden, people on the internet, because, you know, you got to talk about sports. You can't just watch them, enjoy them. Like, what an amazing throw. The quarterback carried the team. Thank God for quarterbacks and throws. What are you talking about? Anyone can throw a ball. It was the receiver, man. He saved the day with that amazing catch. No, it was a throw. No, it was a catch. And the, the joy of the victory is gone because instead of rejoicing in this, we start fighting about its component parts. And that's exactly where we are in this text today. When it comes to salvation, we like to fight about, well, is it of faith or is it of works? And we get really nervous in passages like James where he talks a lot about works. We like Paul, especially those of us who've been around the New Testament for a while. We like to hear about Paul, right? We, we want to hear about how that, that we're overwhelmed by the graciousness of God, and so we absolutely know we can bring nothing to the table. There's no works we can do. It's all of grace. It's all of Jesus. Praise God, yes. And then James comes along and ruins that ride with things like verse 24, where he says, you know, you see, you're not justified by faith, but by works. And we're like, what? Someone shut James up. What's wrong with him? Because after all, Paul died for us on the cross. We go with what Paul said. You see, James knows Paul. Most likely, many scholars, I'm not a scholar, but they make very convincing arguments. Most scholars think that James is probably one of the earliest books, if not the earliest, written a mere decade after his brother's death. So here James is articulating a clear gospel, but notice he's got this emphasis because Paul and, and people like him, are, they're, they're coming and like, man, you can bring nothing to the table. You don't earn your way to salvation. There's no works you can do. It's all of God's grace. And James comes along and says, absolutely. But they also want to see that grace go to work after salvation. So who's right? I mean, is it a great throw? Are we supposed to talk about quarterbacks all the time? 
Or is it a great catch? We got, we got room to you know, give some love to receivers. Well, they're both right. Grace and works go together. James has been making the case for the first two and a half chapters here that we're to be doers of the word. It's a phrase the original people would have heard as being poets of ultimate reality, those who make this connection between the way the world is and the world that one day, someday will be in the gospel. Last week, we saw that those kind of poets, us, in Jesus, we refuse the tribalism that is so rampant in humanity, the, the discrimination and partiality that just comes so naturally to us that in Jesus, we're able to eschew all of that. James reminds us that good church folk aren't brains in vats who just need information. No, God has put us into bodies so we can feel some things and so we can do some things. Biblical Christianity acts because works prove our faith is what James wants us to see. And that gets us to our theme for today, which is this, that brains like beliefs and bodies actions, but Jesus' poets unite both to bring life. So let's walk through this difficult kind of enigmatic passage together. We're going to start out with the first couple of verses asking the question, faith alone is dead? That's what James says. He starts out with this rhetorical question that expects a negative answer. His very first question, he expects his reader to say, um, no. Here's how he put it for the boys and girls in their verse 14 so we can follow along. It says this, um, what is the use of saying you believe the gospel if it makes no difference in how you live? You don't really think that kind of belief can save you. See, James says there is a faith that can't save. It's a faith that lacks works. Okay, so we gotta stop right there. I mean, okay, what is going on here? What does this mean? Those of you who've been around Christianity for a while, you know we're like, we're like on some very thin ice right here talking about all this stuff. So what is this? Let's, let's define works. So. The way the New Testament looks at works, if I could sum it up for you, is this. You have ritual works and you have result works. Ritual works are things that come from the, the religious heart of humanity. We all do it, Christian or no. People who don't believe in any kind of supernatural, we still do this. We think, if I put good out there, I get good back. Call it karma, call it whatever you want. You know, if I jump through these hoops, God will love me. In church world, it's, very most, it's most often expressed, hey, I write a check, I get a good life this week. And, and Paul comes along. Paul is the guy who's like, no, you don't jump through hoops to earn God's love. You don't jump through hoops to get salvation. Jesus earned it for you, and God gives it to you as a gift, not because you're a cute little puppy. You're like, oh, you need some grace? No, you're ugly. It's all of grace. No ritual works. No hoops. James comes along, and James is talking about result works. So as real ritual works says, if I do this, you will love me. Result works come along and say, because you have done this, because you have loved me, I want to do this. Because you've set me free in Jesus, because you looked at me when I was in debt to my sins, out of the riches of your grace, you gave me Jesus Christ. And because you were so generous, I am free from my possessions and I want to be generous. Not because I think you owe me anything, but because I owe you and I want to be generous. You can apply it to anything else, but this idea of if I jump through a hoop, that's ritual. Because something has been changed within me, I want to act. That's result works. Paul, when he uses the word works, he's always talking about ritual works. 
And James, when he's talking about works, he's talking about result works. Church people recognize that. The New Testament uses that word in different nuances. And in James, it's not ritual. It's about the results. He would say, yes, amen, Paul, to your ritual works. It's always grace. And then James would add, if the gospel has given you new life in Jesus, you will live out that new life. See, as a poet of Jesus, James says our calling is to be that connection between the world that is and the world that will be. And that means we have to use works to do that, the works he has put in us and empowered us to do, to take his grace to the world that is. He gives us a great example to help us get this. He gives us theoretical knowledge, and I love how he gives us a practical, real-world example. He says, okay, say you're walking along and you see, you know, a church person who's in obvious poverty. They're shivering. They have nowhere to live. They're wearing rags, and you're walking along. You're like, Bill? Bill? Is that you, Bill? Man, I haven't seen you in church in, in like a month, Bill. Oh, you're still down on your luck, aren't you? Oh, man. Well, you know, thoughts and prayers, and you just walk on away. James says you are absolutely not a Christian if you can do that. That's pretty harsh. In case you get mad at me, that's not me, that's James. Look at me in verse 17. He says, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And dead means what you think it means. Dead. It's like smelling worse than the smoothie Marty left in his car. Dead. Decaying. Yuck. Genuine faith meets the needs of the poor because it recognizes that in the gospel he has met us in our poverty with the riches of Christ. Especially if it's the poor in the church. Or a false faith, a dead faith just offers meaningless words, trite advice. And don't spiritualize this. Sometimes we, we get away with things we're trying to spiritualize them. Here's what I mean. I, we have a dear friend in our life. His name, his name is Michael. My kids call him Uncle Michael. He's that close of a friend. And uh, we were in grad school together the first couple of years. And I remember um, seminary. And he came, home, he came to our place one time and he had this thing. He was, Sean, you are not going to believe what I got today. He, he waited tables to pay his bills. And he handed me a tract. And someone, some company somewhere had printed these up. Someone had paid money to have these printed up. Someone else had taken them and was passing them out. And they put their contact info on there. And the very first line of the track said this. Kid you not. I may not be able to offer you much of a tip. But I can give you something even better. And it went on to outline the gospel, sort of. And it was made to give to waitstaff. It was made to steal from them by justifying my own conscience. I was, I'll give you little or no tip, but I'll give you this. And so I'm okay. Right, God? I, I evangelized. And so my friend Michael, who was like this, um, he responded. And he let them know that he was a pastor in training and that he had worked for them and they had robbed him. They had violated one of the Ten Commandments that they were living in sin. And he, using this passage, told me, because you actually are not a Christian and you should not think you are. You need to repent and believe the gospel. And he responded. And then because I know him, I promise you, he found out who printed it and he responded to them too. But he's right about that, according to James. See, belief only Christians, faith without works Christians, think it's okay to feed souls and ignore bodies. Poets don't think that way. Here's how a, a famous pastor from a, a century ago, Charles Spurgeon in London, he put it this way. He said, you know, if you want to give a hungry man a tract, Wrap it up in a sandwich, right? Isn't that great? I love that. See, James says our belief in the gospel is dead. 
if it doesn't change the way we live. Poets of Jesus live out the reality he has put into them. They demonstrate the gospel that he has brought into them. They live out these works, not because they're trying to impress God, but because they have been impressed by God. They have been changed by him because they don't don't separate beliefs and actions. Poets put them together because faith without works is dead. The next thing James shows us is in the middle part here, starting in verse 18, he says, faith is never alone. He starts out with, it's an official argument form called a diatribe. It actually used to be a good thing now if you say someone's doing a diatribe, it's an insult. It used to be an official form and it starts out always with a hypothetical objection. That's what James does here. He has a hypothetical objection. He basically has some nice person saying, well, James, it's okay because, you know, um, I'm not really a works person. I'm a faith person, so it's okay. In other words, come on, Jimbo. Some of us really like to learn theology. Others are more into mercy ministry. It's no big deal. And surely you agree that, you know, good theology is important. And James comes right back and says, one, you know, stop calling me Shirley. And two, verse 19, he says this in verse 19. He says what? You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Here's how I put it for the kids to kind of capture it. You confess I believe in one God. Great. The demons believe that too. And it scares them. See, what's James doing here? He's telling the hypothetical person of verse 18, demons have better theology than you do. They learn about God and it scares them. You learn about God and like, I can manipulate him. Okay, I can do that. Here's my good works. See what James is saying here without saying it? Is faith apart from works is demonic. And then in verse 20, He says, it's actually useless and it's the faith of fools. We need to hear that. Those of us who think that we are orthodox, we very often, we're, we're quick to excuse ourselves from works because we can pass a theology test. But James won't let us do that. Gospel transformation is about the whole person regardless of what we confess. If we haven't been transformed by the gospel, then it actually hasn't changed our life. We don't have the gospel. Let me say that again. James comes along and says, we don't actually believe the gospel if it hasn't transformed our life. See, we may accurately confess truth, but if it doesn't drive us to greater obedience, if it doesn't drive us to greater works of mercy, towards our neighbors, when life squeezes the Christian Christ is supposed to come out, if that doesn't happen, then you don't have it in you, James says. Here's how a pastor from a previous generation put it. There's no slide for this. I found this uh, too recently. It says this. This is hard. He says, um, if demons can hold such a faith and remain in hell, people can hold such a faith and go to hell. See, James doesn't want that for us. And so he gives a very powerful example for Jewish Christians. He goes back to Father Abraham. Okay, so real quick, let's, let's catch us up. You know, let me give you the, the, the summation of last season. Um, Abraham was chosen by God, didn't know anything about God, was wandering, taking care of his stuff, and all of a sudden God spoke to him and called him and gave him these promises. I'm going to make you a multitude of nations. I'm going to give you so many descendants, you can't even count them all. And Abraham believed God's promises. And the text says God counted it to him as righteous, righteousness. Years went by. Decades went by. No child. 
You know, and if you're going to have like a multitude of nations, it has to start with one, right? And so Abraham's getting like, you know, biological clocks taken, wife's biological clocks taken. Where's the promise? But Abraham believed and finally he had a child, Isaac, and God called him to sacrifice that one child. And Abraham did. That's the plot that James is referring to here in these next verses. Let's look together at verse uh, 21 through 23 in the kids' version to wrap it up a little bit easier. Father Abraham's belief was proved true when he offered up his son Isaac to God. His belief, along with his changed life, proved that he really trusted God. And that's what the Bible means when it says Abraham believed God, and so he was called righteous. See, Abraham was declared righteous. To use a big Christian word, he was justified in God's sight when he believed God's promise. But then, 40 years later, he demonstrated that righteousness when he obeyed when it was hard. So he was declared a truth, and then he demonstrated that truth. The New Testament, what causes confusion is that's two different ways of looking at the word justifies, how the New Testament would define it, to declare something and to demonstrate something. So the New Testament uses this word, like I just said, called justify, and it means this, big Christian word, it means to be declared just or righteous and to demonstrate being righteous or just, to vindicate and we get confused because the New Testament uses it in both sense. And church people like us, we tend to really emphasize the declarative part of justification. We're big fans of Paul. We are righteous. We don't spend that much time in James. And so we tend to underestimate the vindication aspect of justification. Okay, that's a lot of big words. What do I mean by this? Here's what the Bible says is going to happen one day someday. That those of us who are made one with Jesus, those of us who've confessed faith in him as Lord, we are declared righteous. The New Testament calls that to be justified. But then one day someday we will stand before him and we will be vindicated. What does that mean? That means that that snide comment you got at work for that person who knows you were a Christian, Jesus saw Jesus will bring it up, and Jesus will say, thank you for honoring me. He will vindicate your works in his name. That promotion you lost because your boss knew you were a Christian, just doesn't like it, Jesus will say, I saw it. I was honored by your stance. I vindicate your, thank you for doing that. You will be vindicated. The righteousness he put in you came out of you, and that will be vindicated. It's a beautiful thing. You will stand before God, and all the junk you endured in his name, he will claim, he will own, and he will thank you for it. He will say, well done. That's vindication, and that is part of the New Testament fancy word justification. But we don't really talk about that part much, do we? Because we're Paul fans. We talk about the beginning. James talks about that part of it. That's what he's doing here. James is talking about the demonstration of a righteousness that has been put in you. That's why he says the word justified in verse 21. It means vindicated. Abraham was vindicated. He proved it was true. Which gets us now to that part that makes good church folk nervous, right? If you're paying attention at all, Verse 24 is going to start to make your eye twitch, right? But before we get there, here's how I want to kind of look at this section here in verse 24. We're going to call this either ghosts, zombies, or poets. Now let's look together at verse 24, right? It says this, You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So if you've been around church world for a little while, um, there's this cat named Paul, and he wrote this book called Romans. 
And in the book called Romans, he says the exact opposite. He says, and so you see a person is justified by faith apart from works. So this is one of those places people love to come into. It's one of them there contradictions. There you go, right there. Can't <laughs> trust it. But it does seem contradictory, right? This is one of the reasons that Martin Luther was like, nope, take it out of the Bible, burn it, do bad stuff to it. We don't like it. What do we do with this? I mean, honestly, this is hard. Should we just be like, I don't know, Bible's hard, forget it. <laughs> Maybe, right? So that's okay, because you guys are Presbyterians, so you have professional Christians who can help you through this. <laughs> Remember what we've already covered, right? Paul is all about the declared righteousness. James focuses on the demonstration of that righteousness. And so here's how I put this for the boys and girls in verse tw their verse 24. It says this. Say, you see a person is proved to be righteous by how they live, not just by what they believe. See, they don't earn, they prove what has been put into them. See, the gospel makes us real people, in other words. Poets who live out their beliefs, who have an integrity of faith and works. In Jesus, we can be the authentic people we wish we were, is what James tells us. He puts that together because we all struggle with hypocrisy in our hearts. We all struggle to be really who we are. We all leave situations like, oh, I think I kind of played a character there instead of actually being true to myself, but I was afraid. James says the gospel helps us get over that and actually be who we are supposed to be, poets. But what we do, instead of being those poets, we live our life saturated in the death of verse 26, either being zombies or being ghosts. Okay. Hear me out. So ghosts used to be the big, scary thing in Western culture, right? For like 2,000 years, people knew what ghosts were. People are scared of ghosts. But have you noticed, like in the last generation, it's kind of shifted. Now zombies are like everywhere. I, I don't mean like literally, right? Okay, <laughs> okay. <laughs> don't you see them? I know. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, anyway, so zombies are like a part of the mental, uh, mental picture of people. That, that's what scares people. And have you ever thought about how that transition takes place? You know, probably not because you're not a pastor with too much time on his hands. So anyway, a culture that believes in the supernatural, that believes that this world is not our home, that there is supernatural realities, the ultimate horror is somehow being trapped and being a ghost. That's the ultimate horror. A culture that has jettisoned the supernatural and lives primarily in materialistic presuppositions that we believe that this world is all there is and that human freedom and autonomy is the highest good, the horror then is to be trapped in this without your freedom, without your autonomy, to be a zombie. That's what scares us. So here's what I'm telling you, I'm, I'm taking you here because James comes to us and he says, are you a ghost? Those of you in church world who would read a letter addressed to Christians, are, are you a ghost? Are you a spirit with no body? Beliefs with no actions? Faith without works? Or are you a zombie? Are you a body with no spirit? Actions with no beliefs? Works with no faith? Or are you a poet? An integrated whole? what he calls, or we translate often, a doer of the word. Are you a poet of the word? That authentic connection between the world that is and the world that will be. Are you living out that faith through works? Maybe that analogy is not doing it for you. Let me try a different one, okay? I've been ordained for over 20 years at this point, done a lot of marriage counseling, and the problem I see over and over and over again is kind of related to this text. People 
get married. They go through the ceremony. Their marriage, their love is declared real. And they live in that for a little while. They enjoy each other. They have fun. But then they start just kind of having separate lives just because you're kind of doing stuff separately, two different jobs or whatever it is. And all of a sudden, instead of the continual demonstration of that love and that marriage, what the Bible calls becoming one flesh, you know, which is like your increasing friendship where you get to have your bestest buddy in the whole world over the course of years and years and years. Instead of that, you tend to kind of just sit back and get apathetic. And, and you're not wandering, you're not going anywhere, but you kind of just rest in the declaration in the ceremony way back in the day. And you don't live in the demonstration of your love daily. You're living in a marriage that's all about faith without works. So my question would be for you longtime church people, has your passionate faith from days gone by kind of morphed into being a roommate with Jesus? See, we're empowered to live passionately with Jesus as his poets because his life, death, and resurrection gives life to our bodies and our spirits and makes us whole. Jesus left his throne to live as a poet among us, bringing life to the zombies and life to the ghosts all around him and ultimately giving his life to heal them, to make us whole, to unite faith and works so we can be this whole people we were meant to be. See, when you confess faith in Jesus as Lord, when you're united to him by faith, so you're whole as well, you're then commissioned and empowered to go and do his works because Jesus wants to change the world. So let's come full circle with this. It doesn't matter at the end of the day how great of a throw it was or how great of a catch. What matters is it was a victory for the team and they all get to be in the celebration. In Jesus, you're on the team. So his victory is your victory. So James would come and say, man, get on the team by placing your faith and trust in Jesus. Don't ever ever look to your own works to get you on the team. But now that you're on the team, you better show up and practice hard because you've, you made the cut. You're the coach's favorite. Live like that's true. That's placing your faith and trust in Jesus and being changed and then being empowered to live that out. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, texts like this are hard. Lord, we ask right now that you would be true to your promise that you by your Holy Spirit would bring us understanding and change. And especially this morning, would you do it in spite of the messenger, Father? Lord, we pray that you would make us people of integrity. We don't, we don't wanna be hypocrites. We don't wanna be zombies or ghosts, Lord. Would you make us authentic poets that live as we profess? And I pray, Lord, that even now your spirit would come and would you bring conviction? There are people here, Lord, who've been living as a zombie, who've been living as a ghost. Would you bring them conviction even now? and cause them to confess faith in Jesus as the resurrected Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would do that by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.